there was an atheist who had become a Christian and wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. In that book, he tells of the moment of his conversion, and he says this, You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come last upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and an obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who cannot duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? C.S. Lewis. Isaiah 33 comes out of a setting where God's people were doing the exact same thing. They were turning back to Him, not as their great fountain of all good, but as their last resort. Repentance was not their way of life. Repentance was their last-ditch effort to stop disaster. But God received them anyway. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, Judah was being threatened by the Assyrian Empire. God had promised to help them. But what were they doing? Uh, We're going to go back to Egypt for help. And Egypt let them down. So Assyria kept on coming, pushing, reaching, grabbing. King Hezekiah tried to buy off the Assyrians. You can read all about it once again in 2 Kings chapter 18. He takes money from the temple treasury. So you guys get that? So what he's doing is like, God who saved us, God who saved us from Egypt, who's called us to, to live for him and to have the joy of having His presence in the temple. We are going to take the money out of the temple, His treasury, and try to buy off Egypt. Try to buy off, I'm sorry, Assyria to, to get Him to leave them alone. And you can kind of imagine the scene, the swarm of the Assyrian army surrounding Jerusalem, You can see columns of military out on the horizon. And you can just see the picture, in my mind at least, of the officials of Judah standing on the city wall going, Oh, boy, we're in a bad spot. We're in a really bad spot. And they're nervously watching. They're nervously watching chests filled 
with gold and silver, carried out on carts through the city to the Assyrian commander centered in the distance. It's humiliating to Judah and obviously incredibly dishonoring to God. His people were doing what? They were treating him like a worthless ally. And on top of that, they were making him pay the bill. But they didn't see it that way. What they saw was what they thought was hope. Finally, those Assyrians are going to let us go, and they're going to let us let up on us. This is all going to be over soon. Boy, have we thought this one through. And then there goes God's money, God's honor, and their integrity in the form of a payment to the Assyrian mafia. And and as they watch from the wall, waiting for the, the foreign army to pack up their weapons and disassemble the battering rams and take away the ladders, fold up their tents, the leaders of Judah began to realize, "Uh uh-oh, they're not going anywhere. They were double-crossed. Assyria is planning to attack anyway. And all along, Judah had made what? They had made a deal with the devil. And as the truth of the situation dawns on them, they're like, oh, there goes the money. Oh, here comes the army. They finally admit, I think, we think, we've miscalculated. Our whole strategy's wrong. Then they start going, you know what, have we offended God? Yes. And on top of that, we've weakened ourselves and gained nothing in the deal. They hit rock bottom, and they finally realized that they had nothing left but maybe, hopefully, the grace of God. And then to God they go. They can't tell Him that they value Him very much, can they? They can't really say, you are the one from whom all blessings flow to him very well. They're really valuing him as their backup generator plan. He's their backup plan. But God receives them anyway. And that's the setting of Isaiah 33. And what Isaiah reveals here, and as we will read in a moment, is God's answer to overdue repentance. The question in my mind this week as I was reading this, what does God say to people who have failed Him and are only beginning to get it? What does He say to them? Well, Isaiah 33 tells us, that the mess that we've made of our lives is the very place where God meets us anew. He isn't put off by the 
small dinky portion of our paltry repentance and in comparison to his overflowing, overwhelming grace, he accepts our repentance at a great cost to himself. Isaiah 33 is for people who haven't been trusting God. It's for people who are seeing in a new way that they can't treat God as some genie in a bottle and somehow experience his power. They're seeing finally that they can't marginalize God and live in the flow of his blessing. Isaiah 33 is for people who've given themselves to all the wrong things and are now seeing that their lives are becoming a lost opportunity. The message of Isaiah 33 is this. It actually is too late to think you really honor God. But even now, if you come now, even now, your eyes will behold the king in all of his beauty. And you'll see that in verse 17 when we read it in a moment. The outline of this chapter, as we read it here in a second, and I want you to watch this as it flows, the outline is really simple. There is a real clear path back to God. You'll see the whole understanding of trust we've talked about that the last few weeks right trust in God trust in God you will see that trust in verses one through six you will see that there needs to be brokenness in verses seven through twelve and you will see that that brokenness and that trust leads to renewal in verses 13 through 24 In light of this chapter, as we read it, remember that our repentance is not perfect, right? It's imperfect. Itself is a reason. Our repentance in and of itself is a a reason that we need deeper repentance. (laughs) I'm repenting, and I need to repent of the repentance. (laughs) But still, repentance takes us back to a practical trust in God. And then we understand his blessings that are on us. And what it does, as you read this, it replaces sinful impulses that people have. And we're going to discuss this idea of self-salvation in the midst of this today. It replaces all of that with a peace of the full salvation in Christ alone. Those are the three points in chapter 33. Trust, brokenness, renewal. Daniel, read it for us, and let's see if we see that right now. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed. And he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him, as soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. And as soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. 
O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Behold, their brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. The highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like a, des a desert plain, and Bashan and Carmel lose their foliage. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. You have conceived chaff. You will give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns who are burned in the fire. You who are far away... Hear what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech with which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue which no one understands, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there the majestic one, the Lord, will be for us a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle hangs slack. It cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, nor spread out the sail. Then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will take the plunder. And no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. We see in verses 1 through 6 that when we trust God, God makes a huge difference, obviously, in our lives. I mean, look back at verse 1 there where it says, Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous while others do not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. This is pointing towards Assyria. They're destroying. They're double-crossing. This verse is God's cry of judgment. And I want to show you something that I haven't 
shown you over the last few weeks. But in chapters 28 through 33 here, they, they are marked by a key word appearing six times, the last time here in verse 1, and it's translated a few different ways, oh, ah, woe, but woe the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim in chapter 28, oh, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, verse 29, or chapter 29, oh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, chapter 29, oh, stubborn child, Chapter 30, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, chapter 31, and oh, you destroyer, chapter 33 here. God is interjecting at those points, and that's the key word of the interjection. God is speaking his, his sovereign will into the world at those times. He's intervening He's intersecting then in human affairs. But instead of confronting his own people, Judah here, God is addressing the Assyrian enemy. And why is he doing that? Because his people have entered into repentance. Now, they had always called God their king, but now they're starting to actually treat him as such. And we see that in verse 2 because we see what, what repentance sounds like. The prophet Isaiah gives voice to, to the people's newfound feeling for God there in verse 2. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be there, strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress. Their, their tune had changed, right? This is how trusting people actually speak to God. What they say is, the only thing between us and disaster is you, God. Our only hope is your strength moment by moment. Our, our needs, yes, they're constant, they're urgent. But by faith, we, we lay hold of your endless grace. That grace promised in the gospel and you see in verse 3 there, the people look up to God in confidence. They see him in a new way all of a sudden in verse 3. They see him ruling decisively over everything. It's, it's exactly what we see in the book of Matthew in chapter 8. Starting in verse 22, when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You, you can see that this is happening even here in Isaiah. They see that all he has to do is scatter the nations. And in doing that, all he has to do is to stand up. All he has to do is to stand up. 
What did Jesus do? He stood up. He got up. People flee when you lift yourself up is what is being said here. And in verse 4, they look out at those nations, and that's plural, with boldness. The, the power of evil is going to be stripped bare and going to be looted. It's going to be gone. Verses 5 and 6, the people reaffirm that they all need God. In other words, now they know that the key to life is this miracle of faith. And this miracle of faith makes that miracle theirs. So here's the point. When we really trust God, guess what we're going to find? God. When God is all we have, we find that God is all we need. It's that simple. When God is all we have, we find that God is all we need. And that is how trusting God changes our experience of God. When we respect Him enough to let Him take control, He becomes, as we see there in verse 6, He will be the stability of your times. He will be the stability of your times times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. No one, and I'll repeat that, everyone, no one else can give those treasures to you. No one, not even yourself. And that's the first step back to God, to start trusting him. So let's move to our second step in verses 7 through 12. When we own our failures, everyone, when we own our failures, that is when it is possible for God to assert His glory amongst us. I mean, verses 7 and 8 talk about those cries. The brave men cry in the streets. Ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. It's desolation. It's despair. This is what Isaiah is portraying as, as Judah had dissolved in panic. Peace negotiations had failed. Invaders at the gate. Self-salvation makes a lot of sense until you try it. Did you catch that? Self-salvation makes a lot of sense until you try it. No one anywhere, even under the most ideal conditions, has ever figured out how to live right without God. And that's the point there of verse 9. Not trusting God always will mess up human existence. The, the lands that are mentioned there in verse 9, those countries, they're actually pleasant places. They're beautiful. Maybe you've been online or looking at something and maybe came in the mail or whatever, enticing you to go on a tropical retreat. Have you ever seen any of those? No, none of you have ever had that ad show up. 
some couple walking down the beach in this beautiful place, and you go, wow, I can be there last year for $4,999, this year for $8,999. But I can be there. And it'll be awesome. And maybe you do need some time off, but more profoundly, if you find yourself on that beautiful beach, guess what? You still need God. And being there without God is awful. Now, conversely, this is true. Being here today, when it's 102 degrees out at 3 in the morning, (laughs) being here today, being anywhere today with God, that can be heaven. May I say to all of those who have tried to escape different areas of their life because that escape supposedly is going to make their life better, it better have been God that called you to serve in a new area than you trying to escape your present circumstances. Because it's amazing how those present circumstances will follow you to Texas. We'll follow you to Idaho. We'll follow you wherever. But you can be living in the midst of a place that is encircled by awfulness and in trusting God and admitting your brokenness, you can have peace. You see, when you are defeated, downcast, disgraced, and disappointed, and that's as far as I could go with the Ds, when you are defeated, downcast, disgraced, disappointed with yourself and what has happened in your life, that is the perfect time to realize that God is there and has always been there. And God enters in and intersects with that and says, Ah, oh, whoa. Now I will arise. Now I've got you where I want you, as it says in verse 10, right? Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted because whenever anyone sees what's going on in Scott Julian's life, they'll know it isn't because of him. He is admitted sin, he has admitted brokenness, he is trusting in the Lord, and now I will be exalted. It's that decisive now. And I would just like to tell everyone, I think every moment in our lives is a now moment. When you sink to your lowest, that's when he says, now we're getting somewhere. What happens is God turns to our Assyria and all of the powers of evil that that we think are going to destroy us. And what does he do? He speaks to their doom. But our part is interesting. Go back to verse 7. What is our part? We're to cry in the streets. 
we are to admit right out in the open that only God can save us. Only God can save us through Christ. The Bible is so clear about that. Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. That understanding of weakness, of failure, is essential for our walk with the Lord. We can never, I don't, you know, some, some people in here have been believers for a long time. And some of you are brand new baby believers. And some of you may be kind of trying to figure this all out. Let me tell you this. You will never outgrow the humility of brokenness before God. If you're doing it right, you're going to never outgrow that. You see, in becoming a Christian, you're admitting that your whole life has been wrong. And that's where a lot of people have a stumbling block, right? I, I, I hear people all the time say things like, well, you know, it's pretty good, but I, but I needed to add God. You still aren't getting it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's the definition of a sinner? Someone who's a failure. Because sinning is failing to hit the mark that God has posted as perfect. If you go to a target range and you take aim at that target that's 100 yards out and you miss the bullseye by that much, you've still missed the bullseye. You are technically a failure. Don't you feel awesome? <laughs> but that's why we got we to gotta get this brokenness thing right. As you, as you grow in Christ, you can never leave that realism behind. Your failure is God's opportunity. Your failure is God's opportunity. Your sin is God's moment to redeem. Jesus said in Matthew 9, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he wasn't saying there was a boatload of righteous people out there. Because as Paul said, all have sinned. Now, here's what I like about all of this. How many of you recently, and I know there's exceptions to the rule, but Let's be honest, this is probably the case. How many of you have a doctor that calls you personally to schedule the next appointment? That's what I kind of figured. But that's what Christ does. Uh, I, I will draw you. I will call you. 
I will bring you in. And when you answer that call, what happens? He is exalted. He is exalted. He exalts himself on your behalf. Even at the 11th hour of your overdue repentance. And and just listen up. Some of you in here, you need to repent. I don't know what, but you can just see it. You need to repent. All of us are there. And so you trust. You you admit brokenness. You admit that, okay, we're coming as a last resort. We have tried everything else but God, and now we realize that it needed to be God and nothing else. And verses 13 through 24 wave an awesome victory flag. The king will save his people. The king will save his people. See, what we're waking up here from Israel and what they've been doing in life and under Isaiah's influence is this dreamy illusion of self-sufficiency. There is no such thing of self-sufficiency that's going to get you to heaven. We come alive through the all-sufficient blood of Jesus Christ. And now Isaiah holds before us this vision of peace and freedom and joy belonging to Christ. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, verse 11, we, we boast in Christ. We wave the flag of victory of the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And it's this confident delight that is the spirit of verses 13 through 24. But What's interesting is part of that, though, is a conviction of sin. Sinners become alarmed about themselves. And the outline of 13 through 24, that little section, shows that part of the renewal is God's wounding of our consciences. Where he's like, okay, I'm going to wound you. But I'm also going to heal you with forgiveness. And then I will lead you into peace and joy. Reread those verses and you will see that clearly. You see, sin must be exposed and healed. Christ must become beautiful to us. Then when Christ becomes beautiful to us, it doesn't matter anymore what the world may do to us. We're safe in Christ. And that's why... You know, that that part of verse 14, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And what's being said there is we're safe and rich in Christ because God is holy. God's a fire who burns forever with this intensity that we cannot even understand. We have to remember that God in all of his glory is unsafe. For us. How many of you have realized in your life that you fear all of the wrong things? 
You fear the Assyrians, but you don't fear the Lord. We blame the world for our problems. And so you start asking all the wrong questions, and these may sound familiar, these two. Why isn't God helping me right now? What practical good is God in my life? But when the truth of God's holiness gets a hold of us, those questions get flipped. And we start going, why should God care about me at all? compared to His holiness. How, how can a life like mine be compatible with someone like that? And the answer is, without Christ, it's not. It's not compatible. There is a gap. There is a canyon that's wider than the Grand Canyon between you and God. And that self-sufficient way of trying to build the bridge over that canyon will never, ever be built. The only thing that fills the gap of the canyon is the cross. And as Jesus calls you to him and you walk over the cross, you are renewed. You are renewed. Reforming our lives in a bold and practical way causes us to dwell on the heights there in verse 16. Fortresses of rocks. We don't deserve God's favor. Only Christ deserves good from God. But by His grace, we are saved. And and in the process of that brokenness, in the process of that renewal, then something burns inside of you. And the Spirit is in you and you are, you are walking in newness. And that's where it comes into existence with that idea that Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You're only going to be satisfied. You're only going to... Be pure in heart when you answer the call of Christ. And then your eyes are going to behold the king and his beauty. They're going to see a, a land that stretches afar. And Isaiah in verse 17 and following there is talking about a reversal of the whole perception of reality. All Judah could see and all that mattered was the Assyrians. How many of you in life have only seen the present awfulness right in front. And you can't seem to see anything else. But then you get those new eyes. New heart. And you see the king in all of his beauty in the midst of the craziness around you. And you realize, you know what? This world is stinking crazy, but I'm safe. I'm safe. And I had nothing to do with that safety. 
it's all God. He is the fortress. He is the rock. You know, that old Assyrian army stood outside Jerusalem, had probably picked out its priority targets, but all of a sudden, that army was a memory. Where did it go? Well, when you have your eyes focused on Christ and on the light that comes from Him and Him alone, you realize that that's all you need. Self-salvation doesn't work. And the Holy Spirit does that in us. He makes Jesus glorious to our hearts as we behold him in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16, 17, in that area there. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, verse 18 of that section, with unveiled face, beholding as in a manner the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see, looking at our lives with our focus on Christ as the only one that we deal with, the only one whose opinion really matters, transfers from glory to glory. Peace. Rest, the joy of heaven. And, and this whole section kind of just hangs on, on verse 20. Look upon Zion. So where are your eyes? On the king. Look upon Zion, the, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed Habitation, a tent which will not be folded, its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn. With your eyes on Christ, the crisis of life is over. You find rest. Not because we can cope with our attackers, but because we're at peace with God. Many of you know this, but what happened to the apostles in their earthly life? Jail, execution, jail again, thrown off buildings. Yet in the midst of that, They say words like rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Why can they say that? Because the crisis of life is over. They found rest and peace with God and God alone. And that's the truth of that. We, We must cease striving, as one author says, We must cease striving and trust God to provide what He thinks is best in whatever time He chooses to make it available. But this kind of trusting does not come naturally. It's a spiritual crisis of the will in which we must choose to exercise faith. 
And when you exercise that faith and follow Christ and live for Him, when you trust Him, when you admit your brokenness, the renewal is incredible. It's pure. It's perfect. And Isaiah portrays how delightful it is when you enjoy God. The church, in verse 20 here, the church will be transformed into this joyful, God-trusting people who can face anything with Jesus as their Savior. That is where God is taking His believing people, and He invites you, He invites me to be part of it. Verse 17 through 19 describes the king taking us into a land with secure borders. And verses 21 through 23 match that by describing the presence of our king as creating these broad rivers and streams. No attack by sea. The two opposites, land and sea, argue how fully our, our king cares for us. We delight ourselves in His greatness. Verse 22, once again, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. And what are we in this scenario? Verse 23. I'm not sure this is fun sometimes. In verse 23, your tackle hangs slack. If you don't know boating, I'm going to explain this all for you in a second. It cannot hold the base of its mass firmly, nor spread out the sail. Then the prey of the abundant spoil will be divided. It goes on, the lame will take the plunder. The picture there is the church is the battered ship. A drifting hulk of metal or wood in this case with all of the cords and everything hanging loose. It's a group of people that are a floating disaster. A floating disaster. A group of people that are a floating disaster that wins the victory. And the picture there is, guess what the church is? It is a group of people that get that they are broken and need Jesus. that they, they get the fact that I am drifting through life with all of everything that's supposed to make a boat work not working. But in Christ, and in Christ alone is victory. And what that picture, once again, is very clear. There's no way that boat wins the victory without Christ. And Isaiah's final word here in this chapter is what every failure in life must remember. The God who wounds us over our sins is the God who heals us from our sins. Verse 24, and no resident will say, I am sick. No resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. 
Isaiah uses a Hebrew phrase there that makes forgiveness very graphic. It suggests that when God forgives, He bears it away. The same word there appears in Leviticus 16 about Israel's day of atonement. Leviticus 16, 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it that all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. All of our lives depend on this. Because the only final crisis in our existence that matters is our guilt before a holy God. Have your sins been forgiven? Has God taken them away? Or are you still denying them? Are you clinging to them? Are you reinforcing their power over you? Well, 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem, there was a goat. And in our modern vernacular today, he also was the goat. Think about it. (laughs) He was the lamb, and he's the greatest of all time. He is the greatest of all time. And he, the greatest of all time, bore the guilt of your sin. Bore the guilt of my sin and takes it away. God says that if we trust him to bear all our guilt away, what does he say? It never comes back. And that startling sense of acceptance in Christ is how we become the trusting in God people we should be, the broken people we should be, and the renewed people we should be. And that's when nothing can hold us back. Nothing can hold us back from the newness of life, not even our second-rate kicking and screaming and eyes darting everywhere, repentance. Because God is the one that saves. Lord, we come before you now thanking you for this very clear outline of how you work, how you work with Judah in that day, how you work with us today.